Uh, let's jump into our text today. Uh, I read most of this text last week, but the second part of this text, I really want to get a little further, a little bit deeper in, believe that uh, there's something in it for us today. And so here's what it says. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he said to him over all he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall be shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah which is easier than Joseph, I guess. Uh, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out, went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years of the earth, uh, during seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. So you remember that Joseph had a dream, and he told him what was going to happen. There were going to be seven years of famine, and, or, or the king had a dream, and the, he interpreted the dream, said there's going to be seven years of famine, or, or seven years of plenty, and there's going to be seven years of great famine that'll make you forget the seven good years. And so this is playing out. This is how this all begins to play out. Verse 49. And Joseph stored up grain. <clears throat> Joseph stored up grain in abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before of the year the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and, my, and, and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the land, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was finished, uh, was fa uh, excuse me, was famished, the, uh, the people cried out to Joseph for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, "Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do." So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let me pray for us again. Uh, Lord, again, we just want to declare that we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you to help uh, me, this preacher today, uh, to say what it is that you would have me say. Uh, give us all ears to hear. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we kind of zoomed through this part of the text uh, last week. So I want to go back and give it just a little bit more attention today. Uh, and so as you read your Bible and work through this narrative, it certainly seems like uh, Joseph stood alone kind of above everybody else on the face of the earth. Uh, he had, was kind of set apart. He had an understanding of God that didn't seem like anybody else around him had. 
Uh, no one seemed to see God as he did or believe God as he did. And so that's kind of the setting in which we find ourselves here. He was really kind of laser focused on God and the things of God, just focused in on what it was he would have him do. No matter what his trials were, no matter the testing that he might have been in the middle of, um, whether he was in the pit or whether he was in the palace, he seemed to be focused on listening to God, hearing from God, and doing what it was that God told him to do. Uh, God, uh, uh, Joseph declared that God would, would be the one who provided the answer. Look what it says in verse 16. He says, Joseph answered uh, Pharaoh, it is not me, but it is God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so he said, it's not me. I know you're asking me, but it's God who will give you a favorable answer. It's almost like when I preach the gospel and people come to know Jesus, it's not because I'm such a good preacher. It's because the Spirit, God used the preaching and the declaring of the gospel, no matter who it is, if it's me or if it's you, he uses the, the declaring of the gospel and then he is the one who awakens people to the good news of the gospel, see? And so it is God who is always at work. It is God who's at work here. And Joseph was saying, it's not me, it's God. It is God is at work whenever we go and share the gospel with people. And so you don't have to feel that pressure to like whenever you share the gospel with people to go, man, if they don't get saved, then it's all on me. No, 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 that's not right. Salvation is of who? Yes, of, yes, of the Lord. Salvation of the Lord, not of you, but salvation of the Lord. He, we, he uses us. He uses the proclamation of the gospel, but salvation is of the Lord. And so, and, and so Joseph was saying the same thing. It's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, uh, three times he named God as the source. Look what it says in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Then he says it again in verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And again in verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams mean that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. What was he doing? He's pointing to God. Everything that he's doing, he's like, it's not me, it's about God. God is the one who's at work. God is the one who's doing these things. God is the one who's about to bring this to pass. God is the one who's about to do a work. And so Pharaoh lifted up Joseph. He's like, man, you're going to be over all this stuff. I can't believe this is what you've told me, but you're going to be over all this stuff. Look what it says in verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt and on the spot, uh, Pharaoh gives street cred to Joseph. Like, this is a dude that's been in prison, and he's like, I'm going to bring you out, and now whatever people, whatever I tell you, or whatever you say to do, uh, you're going to do. And so he was lending his uh, influence over to Joseph, so he gave him street cred. Look what it says in verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck, blinged him up, and he made him ride in his second chariot. They called out before him, bow the knee, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without my, your consent, Joseph, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath Paneah again, and he gave him uh, in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. So first thing he does... <clears throat> is he removes his signet ring and uh, he puts it on Joseph's hand. And so this ring bore the name of Pharaoh. 
And, and usually it was used to press his seal into official documents. So I pulled out my old college class ring today uh, just to, uh, to do that. I don't normally wear it. I had to go scrum, you know, uh, scrambling around to try to find it, hoping it was wherever I left it. I tried to get my high school class ring on, but it wouldn't go on my fat fingers. Uh, so I had to go college class ring. Uh, and so this is, this is the one. Uh, and so it, it made me think of him taking his ring off about how guys will give their rings to girls in high school. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Who of you dudes have ever given your ring to a girl when you were in high school? Raise your hand. Come on, raise your hands up. That few of you, come on. So remember what you would have to do if your girl took, this is what we did in Kossuth anyway. Uh, if your girl took your class ring, what would they do? They'd put it, where would they wear it? Sometimes around their neck. Where else would they wear it? On their, like their, their index finger. What would they have to put in it? Tape. Tape or like, in Kasuth, they'd put like a corn pad, you know? <laughs> I'm like, oh, so your mama got corns, huh? <laughs> uh, but they would put that on there and they would wear that. And that's how you knew that, hey, that girl belongs to Big Fun. Well, I wouldn't make fun back then. But that girl belongs to Scott because he's, he, she's wearing his class ring. That's kind of how that all went. And, and sometimes dudes would, you know, they'd give you your class ring. They, the girls would give you your class ring. You'd run around your, chain, your gold chain, uh, which is also in the story today. Uh, so, so there was kind of things like that. It made me think of all that uh, uh, whenever I was reading this text. And really, that's the way my mind works whenever I'm preaching and teaching is the, uh, it goes into directions like this, and it probably has nothing to do with this story, but that's what it made me think about. Uh, uh, but you get a picture anyway of he gave him his ring, and he said, hey, whatever this dude says do, you do it. And, and so he gave him a symbol of to say, he, I'm giving him my authority to do whatever it is that he says do, and he's second only to me. He is over everybody else in the kingdom. And, and so then verse 42 tells us that Pharaoh clothed Joseph in fine linen. And so now he wore the clothing of the, of the rich and the connected. Um, and, and again, Pharaoh blinged him out. He put a gold chain around his neck. And, and that was really kind of his reward for interpreting those dreams that he had. He's like, finally, somebody can, can do what it is. Finally, somebody is able to tell me what it is, what these dreams mean. And then they had a parade. And this ain't the Arlington Christmas Parade. I mean, this is a big parade. This is much more like, think, presidential inauguration parade. And there were chariots. That was the limousines of their days. And, and people were, were coming out. And as Joseph would come through on his chariot, people were like, bow the knee. Bow the knee. Like, get down. And you need to, this guy's coming through. And he's second only to Pharaoh. And so you bow your knee to him. And and so we don't, you know, we don't honor people like that today. I mean, we'll watch as the president comes through, you know, people will watch as he comes through, but it's nothing like it was then. I mean, people bowed down to Joseph, which is really crazy. How do you think Joseph felt during all this? I mean, think about this. For the previous 13 years, he had been bowing down. For the previous 13 years, he had lived kind of a subservient life to everyone. Remember, he was in prison for a lot of that time. He had been the gopher in Pharaoh's house for a long time, and then he was the forgotten one in prison. And now he finds himself in a chariot with everybody bowing down before him. And he finds himself in Pharaoh's good graces, like instantly. I mean, right away, he is in Pharaoh's 
good graces. And, and if Pharaoh's words, nothing would happen in Egypt unless Joseph said it was okay. Think about that. In the morning, he would literally, in the morning of that day, he was in a dirty, stinking pit. And the same day, he was in the palace. Be a good name of a sermon, right? From the pit to the palace. That'd be a good, be a good name of a sermon. Dressed in designer clothes, servants at his every whim, eating the finest cuisine the land had to offer, barbecue, chicken strips, standard, all the good stuff. But it was really evident that the Pharaoh wanted to Egyptianize Joseph. He wanted to make him part of his own. I mean, we kind of do that too. Whenever we meet people, we want them to know our friends and we want them to eat the same kind of food we eat. And we want to take them, like if you meet a new friend, you're like, hey, come over. You introduce them to some of your friends and you might, I might take somebody to a Mississippi State football game because I want to try to get them over on, you know, move them from whatever dark side they live on and come to the light. Uh, or I'll, I'll bring them over and we, you know, we might cook barbecue together or we'll do something together. You're trying to, to kind of almost make them part of your own culture, right? We do that all the time whenever we meet new people. And so the same thing was happening uh, to Joseph in the text. Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name. His name was Zaphonath Paneah, which really means God speaks and lives, which is an interesting name. Because as much as they wanted to transform Joseph into this new Egyptian kind of person, his name that they gave him actually kept him connected to God. It's kind of a cool thing in the text. But then he gives him a wife. He, got, he gives him a wife. She was the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, and they worshiped the sun. Now, from ages past, men have been enticed by women. Right? Yeah. All you men say it. Yes. yes. Men have been enticed by women. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, women are a gift from God. Literally, if you read back to the Genesis account, what does the, script, what does the scripture say? Uh, uh, God said it is not good for man to be alone. And so God made a helper for him. He made Eve and he said, this is a good thing. And this is a good thing for them to be here. And, and the problem comes though, listen. The problem comes when men objectify women. When men, rather than love women and embrace women, when men use women. The problem comes when men demean women. Well, the problem comes whenever men choose to think of women as secondary to them rather than a gift from God. The problem comes when men think that they can raise their hand and hit a woman. I'm just going to tell you, we don't play that around here. You want to be a jerk to your wife? Just know that I'm probably knock on your door. I ain't, going, I ain't coming to fight you, but I'm coming to go, you ain't going to hit your wife. You're not going to raise a hand to your wife in this church. You're not going to, you're not going to verbally abuse your wife in this church. Not without getting a visit from me. You may swing at me. I may swing back. I've still got a little kasuth in me. We don't do that to women. 
And, and I'll say it in my notes, but, but if that's an issue in your home, ladies, listen, if that's an issue in your home, you tell us. We'll help you get in a safe place. Dudes, if that's you and you need help, come and tell us. We're, we won't condemn you right away, but we will try to get you some help. We just don't do that. Ask for help. Raise your hand, okay? You just keep on. We're going to come for you. But if you'll come to us, we'll get some help for you. Fair enough? Here's the way that the Scripture encourages us to love and care for our wives. Ephesians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. This, will, this text will be actually be on your screen. This, this is what it says. Husbands, what? Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How do you do that? Gave himself up for her. So let's read that together. Husband, read that with me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a big one. If you don't do anywhere else, you stop right there. What did Jesus do? Laid his life down. He gave himself away. He gave himself up. He laid his life down for the church. He died so that we can live. That's the very opposite of what we were just talking about. And so he says, husbands, that's our call, is to love our wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, excuse me, and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of the body. You see the picture he's painting here? Just as Jesus loved the church, he says, dudes, that's the way we're called to love our wives. If we're not loving, if we're Christians and we call ourselves followers of Jesus, this is the way we're called to love our wives. We don't do it, listen, we don't do it perfectly. I never did it perfectly. I still don't do it perfectly. And we won't ever do it perfectly, but our calling is to strive and to ask for help. Ask the Spirit to help us love and care for our wives as Christ loved the church. That's what he calls us to do. Verse 31 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I did a wedding here last night at Refuge, and that's what happened. Two people became one. Two flesh became one flesh. It's, it's the mystery in marriage that God does. If you're a married couple here, that's what God has done for you. Two have become one. That's what Paul was talking about here as well. This mystery is profound, verse 32. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Men, love your wives. Respect your wives. Women are not objects. They are wonderful gifts from God. Amen. Men, this is a good time. You say amen real loud. Women, are, our wives are wonderful gifts from God. Amen? Amen. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Thank you, Charles. But I believe Pharaoh was using uh, a zenith as another pawn to draw Joseph in. He was drawing Joseph into Egypt. And so now Joseph's clothing that he wore was Egyptian. His name was Egyptian. His wife was Egyptian. And, and his father-in-law was the leading sun worshiper of the time. And, and here's why uh, this part of the text is so important. I think Joseph's, Joseph's life 
was in greater peril than at any time he had ever been in his life. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Look what this says. It's one thing to remain believing and God-centered and faithful in the pit. It's quite another to be faithful in the pinnacle. Let me say it one more time. It's one thing to remain believing and God-centered and faithful in the pit. When things are difficult, whenever you're down and out, it's one thing to remain faithful there, right? Because we're, we're looking up. I'm going to talk about that in a second. It's quite another thing to be faithful at the pinnacle. It's in the pit where dependence on God kind of finds itself. Whenever we're at the bottom of the hole, whenever we don't know what we're going to do, how we're going to get out of the situation is we find ourselves there. There's only one way to look in the pit, and what's that? Up. Many times that's to look up to God, to go, God, I, I find myself here. What do I do? How do I get myself out of this? Some of you know what I'm talking about. I mean, life deals you some serious blows. Maybe it's financial difficulty that you find yourself in. You're like, I don't know how I'm going to get myself out of this. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how I got here exactly, and I don't know how I'm going to get myself out of this thing, but, but I'm in a pit, and Lord, I need you. God, will you help me get out of this? Help me to find a way to get out of this situation that I have put myself and my family in. That may be some of you right now. Or maybe it's marital issues. Maybe it is, maybe as husband and wife, you've walked in here and you were at each other's throat last night. You're at each other's throat on the way and you just kind of come in and you put the face on to be really nice here on Sunday morning because that's what we do when we come to church. And so maybe you've come and you go, uh, uh, my marital issues are more than you could even possibly imagine. And I'm in the pit, God, and I need your help because without you, we'll stay right here and we may die down here in the bottom of this pit. My marriage could just die if we don't get out of this pit. Maybe it's rebellious children you have. Maybe your children are such a rebellious times and rebelling against you, and you're like, I don't even know what to do now. God, what do I do? How do I help me, God? Maybe it's a loss of friends or relationships, and you go, I'm all alone, and I don't know what to do because I live by myself, and, and I, don't know how to, I don't know how to get out of this. Help me, God. I'm by myself, and I'm alone. Despair may seem to be your only companion right now. And in these circumstances, we typically turn to God. We ask for his help. We ask for his presence. We ask for his comfort, his assurance, his promise, any hope that he can give us. He does promise us that he'll never leave us. As Christians, he'll never leave us or forsake us. As a church, we're happy about that. Amen? Amen. But on the flip side of that, the pinnacle of the Egyptian life where Joseph found himself, and maybe the pinnacle, the pinnacle of our lives sometimes, our soul drifts toward pride and independence. At the top, looking to God is not so natural. It was easier for Joseph to kind of look down on humanity and not depend on God for his needs when suddenly he's at the top. And remember, even Joseph's name and his clothing and his wife had been transferred over to Egyptian stuff, all encouraging him to kind of forget where he came from, take on a new identity. What things in your life are enticing you away from God? 
See, life at the top can lull us into this false narrative about ourselves. Now that we're so independent and wise, we've made it, right? I've done good. I've I've figured out how to get here where I am. It's just easy when all things are going well for you and me to begin that we're unique and, and we deserve everything we've worked for. Extended time and prosperity can produce an ugliness of soul. I mean, think about it. We, we all know people who've made these meteoric rises up. You know, suddenly they came out of nowhere and suddenly now they're just famous or, or whether it's pro athletes or whether it's media personalities or children of rich and famous people or maybe it's you. Maybe you find yourself in that kind of th- same place where you go, man, I, I've got to come it. I've made it. And I, I'm at the top of my game and, and I, I'm, 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 everything's reporting. People are reporting to me and I'm on top of this and, and I'm where I want to be. Maybe it's a rise out of nowhere, and you're like, I like this life. I'm not looking up from the pit anymore. I'm not dependent on anybody. It would be a place of great danger for us. So what might have shifted in a life like that? No matter where you are, the question is, how are you pursuing God? Who are the people around you that are influencing you in your life? Why do we run to God in trouble and forget him in prosperity? But actually, Joseph responded well in this. Look what it says in verse 46. Joseph was 36 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh and king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and uh, a Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So Joseph worked hard. I mean, he stored up food. The, the, the text tells us that he stored up so much food that they couldn't even measure it anymore. They had to build more and more uh, places to store it. And by the time that he had stored it all up, there was no way to even measure it. See, he, he went to work and he got to work and he was about the work that he was called to do. Christians, I'll say this. I've said it before here, but it's so important for us. Christians, you should be, uh, you and I should be the best workers at our jobs. If you proclaim the name of Jesus, you should be the best worker at your job. You should strive to be the best neighbor on your street. You shouldn't be that neighbor that everybody goes, hmm. They always complain about something. Hmm. They always got a bunch of junk in their yard. You should, be, you should be the best tipper in your restaurant. When you go out somewhere, if you go out to eat today, uh, if you've got that refuge sticker on the back of your car, you better trip 20%. You should throw the best party. You should give the best gifts. We should be the people that bring the best. Remember, as, as, uh, we, should, we always say around here, you should be the pe- people that bring the best wine to the party. You should be, we should bring the best to whatever it is, whatever situation. Why? To reflect the goodness of God in our own lives. 
Because God has been so gracious and kind to us, we should be gracious and kind to other people around us, right? You see what I'm saying? And so Joseph put that principle to work. He went to work and did the absolute best in saving the country. And in the middle of this, he built a family. Look at verse 50. Before the year of the family came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so I told you last week that Manasseh means he who causes to forget and that the birth of him helped Joseph forget all the troubles that he had been a part of. And Ephraim means fertile is the Tennessee Valley. Uh, or actually, just means fertile. Uh, and so it means, that, hey, you've given me another one. And so here we are, we're having another baby. And so he was naming them uh, uh, to just reflect what it was, the kindness of God in that. And also a cool thing of the boys' names, uh, they were Hebrews. Uh, Hebrew, Hebrew names. And he, it, even in the middle of the Egyptian thing, even in the middle of the Egyptian culture, he gave them Hebrews name, Hebrew names. Uh, and then the text tells us the famine came. Look at verse 53. Seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine became, uh, uh, began to come. And Joseph had said, as Joseph had said, there was famine in all the land, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to do, you do. So when the famine had spread to all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses, sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in all the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And so just as had promised in the dream, the, uh, the seven ears of grain uh, and the seven cows that were gone, they came and ate the seven cows of plenty. That's what was happening here uh, as the dreams were coming uh, to fruition. But Joseph had prepared Egypt. And not only Egypt, but really for the entire world, the entire corners of the earth had come to him in the middle of this famine. And had it not been for Joseph's intervening, Massive death would have followed. See where this is going? But instead, Joseph engineered the saving of Egypt and the earth. Money poured into the Egyptian coffers as people came and they uh, paid to have some grain. People actually prospered during this famine. And Joseph became the hero of the Nile. All earth pointed to Joseph as their savior. This, goes, this kind of points back to Genesis 12 that said, in, all, uh, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it certainly points to Joseph's faith in uh, the word uh, that God had said, his commitment to doing God's work. But even bigger than that, he was foreshadowing the savior who was to come. See, Jesus is the true and better Joseph. We said this last week who would save his people from massive death, just as Jesus would save his people from eternal death. See, life at the top, where Joseph was, can be full of perils. Many people can forget God in the height of prosperity. But Joseph not only thrived, or, or not, not only survived, he thrived in that. I believe that kind of came out of his years of testing. Down in the pit. Being basically a slave in the house of Potiphar. Down in the pit in Egypt. 
forgotten in Egypt and then lifted back up to the pinnacle again. How do you do it? I, I believe three things, and I, these are three things I want you to see. First one is this. Uh, Joseph had a transforming belief in the greatness of God. Joseph had a transforming belief in the greatness of God. Joseph believed that God controlled all of life, including the day in and day out events of everyday life. He believed that God was at work even in the sinful acts of other people. He maintained this big view of who God was, more probably than any living soul on the earth at the time. Even told Pharaoh that it's God who controls the Nile. You have that same belief about God? You have that same understanding of who God actually is? That he's in control of literally every aspect of your life? That he knows the ends from the beginnings? That nothing happens unless it is sifted literally through the hands of God? You have faith in that God? I'm not talking about a faith that just knows who he is, but a faith in knowing and trusting him that he is the one who can and will save you. A transforming belief in the greatness of God. If we know God for who he is, and he literally changes us, it, to know Jesus, to rest, for Jesus to rescue us from our sin, literally has to change who we are. We can't be the same person if the spirit of God lives within us. And we trust God in that same way. Secondly, Joseph believed God's word, believed God's word that he had been, had been revealed to him through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believed the covenant promises. He believed the promises of God. He also believed that he stood in Egypt and defying everything else around him that he was there to do the work of God. That's how he could stand before Pharaoh. That's how the apostle Paul stood strong before the king of Babylon. That's how Daniel could stand before the king because he trusted in God. That's how Martin Luther stood before the council, before the world and declared that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Jesus alone. They believed God's word. Joseph believed God like nobody else in his day. How do you stand in that company? Do you believe God's word? Do you believe the words that God speak to you? Do you believe the words that come from the scriptures? Do you believe the words that come from this preacher's mouth declaring them to you today? Do you believe the promises that God makes to you? Do you know the promises of God? Do you want to know the promises of God? Or are you just content to do this your own way? Thirdly, Joseph believed that God was with him both in the pit and at the pinnacle. See, Christians, again, this is the age of affluence. It's possible for middle-aged people, for our middle-class people, which is probably most of us here in this room, for us middle-class people uh, to live possibly a life better than even Pharaoh did during his day. Sometimes we're just insulated from economic difficulty, insulated from, you know, uh, difficulties that come, whether it's Mother Nature or just wh whatever the things around us. We, we live a pretty insulated life, to be true, even in the middle of a pandemic. 
It hasn't necessarily affected most of us in too bad of a way. Sometimes that means we never look to God for anything. That may be you. As I'm saying this to you, you may be realizing it, and if it is, I hope the Spirit is revealing that to you, that you're not turning to God for anything. That you're doing this on your own. You're walking through this life, making decisions on your own without ever consulting God and what he thinks you ought to do. You think you're big enough and smart enough to do it by yourself. Don't let this be you, church. Don't let this be the kind of life that you live. This story about Joseph, I hope it will spur you on, not to a life of independence, but a life of greater dependence on God. That's what happened with Joseph. Even when he came out of the darkest, deepest pit and was literally set at the pinnacle, he didn't do it on his own. He didn't go it by himself. He was literally fully dependent on God, daily trusting him. That's my hope for you, church. Not that you, don't tr that you trust God just for your salvation. And that certainly is the first step. But also with everything that life throws at you. Do you need to trust him today? See, Joseph went to extraordinary lengths to save his people, to save his people from death. And that's why this story really is not about us trying to be a better Joseph, but it's about Joseph pointing us to Jesus, the one that went to extraordinary lengths to save his people, to save you and me. And if, you, and if all that's true, and it is, then your acceptance by God is not dependent on your performance. It's not dependent on what you do. But this story points to the hope that whenever everybody was out of options, whenever everybody was about to die because there was no hope in the land, because there was no food in the land, because there was no substance in the land, there was nothing to keep them in the life. What did they have to do? They had to go to the one who's the only one who could give them life at the time, and that was Joseph. And Joseph points us to Jesus. For you and me, life outside of Jesus is just like the people in the famine. They'll die without going to Joseph, without, and for you and me, we die in our sins without going to Jesus. That's your hope. Jesus is your hope. Do you need him to save you today? Are you one who is here and goes, hey, outside of this, I'm gonna die. And if you're not a Christian, I'm just telling you, you're just like the people in Egypt. You're just like the people from all over the earth. You see, the, the text is very specific. It said, all the world came. Same thing. No matter where you are in the world, if you're watching online or, or if you're just listening to me today, if you're without Jesus, you will die without coming to him. You'll die, and when you die, you'll spend an eternity facing the wrath of God. Or you can come today and find life. In Jesus. How do you do that? 
You repent of your sin. You go, I'm a sinner, and I recognize that I'll die in my sin. And you turn to Jesus, the only wise God, our Savior, the only God who can save you, who gave his life for you. The Scripture says uh, uh, that if we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, that means he covered our sin debt with his blood, he was raised from the dead three days later, and he is now ever interceding on our behalf. If we come to him trusting in his righteousness rather than our own, then we'll be saved. You don't come to him for food, but you come to him for life. And that's my invitation to you today. Come to Jesus for life. Let me pray for you.